normally we don't have the luxury of reading even an entire chapter, uh, let alone an entire book or entire entire letter uh, together. But because this letter is so short, even though we're going to only deal with half of uh, the letter today, I want to read through it in its entirety. When it's done, uh, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll start walking through the first six verses together. So let's read Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandment. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching as both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray together. So God, this morning we thank you for the testimony shared of Manuel Chowsan and the way he loves you and what you're doing in his life and what you're doing in his ministry, and it's been an encouragement to all of us. We thank you again for the reminder that you are absolutely at work, and not just in our context, in our lives, but also all around the world. Help us to keep that in our minds and hearts as we pursue you, as we love you. God, we pray this morning as we walk through these verses that you would both encourage and challenge us. Help us to possibly see some things we haven't before, but the primary is that our hearts are more driven to the center of who you've called us to be, and that is absolute lovers of you and lovers of people. And so help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, at first blush, as we begin reading through and looking at this letter, we see the words, the elder. Obviously, that's a description of the one who wrote this letter. Now, just as I would receive a letter from my mom, she's still a letter letter writer, which I really appreciate and love. She likes writing and receiving. It wouldn't even have to have a self-addressed stamp envelope. If I got that letter from my mom, I would recognize immediately it was her handwriting, who it was from, and I would begin to read it from that context. In the same way, Uh, This letter, as written, was received by those individuals knowing the handwriting of John, the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel of John and of Revelation and of these three letters. They would have known that this letter was directly from him. It also points to uh, the way he forms letters, the way he wrote, the, the style of how he did that was identified as 
as John, the elder, oftentimes when we think of or hear the term elder, we go two different directions. One, in the context of the church, the elder is a pastor or leader. We have several elders who function in that way. We function together and we shepherd. Uh, the other context of elder is one who is older. And obviously, at this point in John's life, he was older. He was an elder, a man of wisdom who could share that, uh, which again points to the fact of who he was. And then we get to this this greeting of who it was written to the elect lady and her children. They're pretty split as far as pastors and commentary writers of exactly who that is. You're going to be able to study that on your own after today if you haven't already and determine which direction you think that that goes. Uh, initially, when I read this, I thought, well, that's written to, um, to a woman and her children, which uh, corresponds with the way that Matthew Henry has written his commentary series. And it also uh, agrees with Chuck Swindoll, who I respect um, as a teacher and as a pastor in the way he teaches. On the flip side of that, there are some who believe this is written to the church. You know, in the New Testament, we see several references to the church and referred to as her and or the bride of Christ in the way that's, that's done. And two who would believe and would say that it's more directed towards the church than it is an individual would be John Stott, uh, who, again, a very profound teacher, and Alistair Begg, who is another one of my favorite pastors to listen to. So you can see how uh, this is... Uh, somewhat confusing, wondering where it's written. And so, again, you've got to land in your own spot on that, depending on your personal study. Where I personally am going to come uh, from directionally this week and next is that I'm going to lean more into the fact that he was writing uh, to the church, uh, to this, this body of believers. Again, the church at that time was formed and was in the homes of individuals. And so smaller groups... Um, but there are some, some uh, mentions of her, lady, elect, uh, the children involved in that um, all throughout this letter. And so I just wanted to make sure that you knew exactly where we were coming from. And that, again, regardless of where you land, I don't know that you can be wrong. There's just not definitive evidence in either direction. And that's important. Remember, as we uh, begin to read God's word, as we spend time there, we need to know uh, what we're reading, who it was to, who it was from, etc. And then we see in the next four verses the term truth out five times. We, we see that term. Oftentimes when we, we think of truth, we match up truth and doctrine. But I don't believe that's where John was going with this. He was more along the lines of teaching what was true, what was right in light of the truth. We also know John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so John was challenging, uh, again, in the context of the church, those who were followers of Jesus, to continue living in the truth. So what does it mean to live in the truth? Again, a true characteristic of the church is, is following and living in the truth of who Christ is, Christ's truth. And so one of the aspects or pieces that we adhere to as following Jesus is that he, by definition, is truth. And so as we follow Jesus, we are saying we are following truth. Now, you know as well as I do, when we have conversations with those who are outside of the realm of the church, and we begin to say we hold to the person who is Jesus, who is the only way to God, if they have a differing opinion, which non-believers typically do, there are a lot of ways to God according to them. 
our stating that we follow Jesus, the only way, the only truth, the only life can ruffle some feathers. It can get kind of dicey in those conversations. And, and individuals that are with can't necessarily hold that. We also know that the Bible is truth. This is God's letter to us, his imparted wisdom to us, the inerrant word of God through all of the authors, the Holy Spirit working together in accord to create this Bible. This is truth. This is our life guide. And so we recognize that as well. We also know the truth of the gospel. We've already mentioned it, found in the person of Christ, but the fact that God is love, that we have sinned and that Jesus saves, the, the message of the gospel in eight words. We also know that that is true. So when John was speaking to the church, he was telling them, reminding them, not only did he love in truth, individuals around him, not only did he love the truth, the person of Jesus, did he love truth, what God had established uh, but also all who know the truth. So he was reminding them not only that he loved them, but that they were called to love each other as well, challenging them in that way and encouraging them. And then it, uh, John in his writing mentions the word abide again. <clears throat> if you recall from our study in 1 John, that was a running theme throughout the entirety of the letter, calling us to abide and live in rest in Christ, drawing closer to him, more of him, less of us. And here's this uh, challenge, encouragement again, while they're living in truth, living in love, Christ abiding in them was a key piece of that because that actually was their, their filter, that he would be with them forever. If you've read the New Testament or much of it, you know typically within the first two to four verses there are greetings that the authors utilize in writing to these churches and individuals and groups of people. And, and this is no different. John here, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us extending that. So what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, receiving something that we didn't deserve. What's mercy? Mercy is having withheld what we truly deserved death and separation. So John, again, dealing with the extremes, the opposites, what those two were, and he's saying that he was imparting that greeting, sharing with them, encouraging them, reminding them of the grace of God, challenging them to be gracious to one another, reminding them of the mercy of God, challenging them to be merciful, and then he includes uh, the word peace. Peace also, another one of those words and a lot of the standard greetings, but when we think of peace, especially in context of our world, we know that the world is absent of or without peace. And so it's challenged to them as they also were in a, a crazy time in the writing of this, all the challenges they faced at the church, individuals, followers of Jesus, knowing the world was lacking peace, he was encouraging and challenging them not only to continue experiencing the peace of Christ with them individually and as the church, but also to extend peace to those who are around. So in our lives, when we share the gospel and we share Christ with people who are lost, especially in the past several months with this pandemic, there should be something running differently through our veins in the way that we approach life. And part of that is the settledness of peace 
that Christ gives us in being his followers, realizing nothing has caught God off guard. He wasn't surprised when the pandemic hit. He didn't start panicking in heaven, going on, what's going to happen to, to my followers to believe? What's, what's going to take place? No, he knew this was coming. And because he's sovereign and because we can trust in him in that way, we too can live out peace. And as people see that in our lives, it's unusual with all that's happening. And so what should it lead to? It should lead to a conversation or be able to share with them why we have a settledness. It's because of the person of Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross. He was reminding the church of that. And then he continues at the end. He, he mentions in the end of verse 3, in truth and love. And so we see this needed balance. If a person solely focuses on truth, what can happen? That person can be perceived as hard or harsh. And it's really a dissemination of information a lot of times when we solely focus on truth. If we solely focus on love, just the, the aspect of maybe an emotional side of love, then our, our lives can sway either direction, whatever uh, that would look like, whatever that would mean. And, and that's not healthy either. So John was reminding the people that they needed to have a balance an equilibrium, if we could say that, of truth and love in the way they approached life, in the way they walked with Christ, in the way they lived out their faith in front of others. So John was reminding them of that and reminding us of that as well. We have to be in that position, balanced truth and love. He continues in verse 4, and he said, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. It's interesting that he said, some. You know as well as I do, we're all works in progress, and there are seasons in our lives when it seems that we are walking in the depthness and, and the richness and the deep love of God, and our, our life just surrounds everything around us, surrounds the truth of God, the love of God in us. And there are times when we struggle, and times when it seems like we're just being churned out of some kind of a, a difficult a washing machine experience where we're just tumbled consistently and it seems like it's difficult for us to, to retain or remain uh, on, that, on that base ground, that base level. And so John was telling them, I rejoice greatly in finding some of your children, some of those within the church walking in the truth, some, of course, who are struggling, but we can understand that as well. We get encouraged when we hear stories like we heard of Aim and Aim today. Someone walking consistently in Christ, of growing, it brings us joy. It causes us to be better. It, it, it reminds us of the goodness of God, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And it spurs us on continually in the faith. And John was saying that was doing that for those who were walking in the truth, just as they were commanded by the Father. It was encouraging, spurring him on. And they too should have been in the same way. In verse 5, Sure, so now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So this is really where the tone of this letter changes from focusing heavily on truth to, again, incorporating, talking through what love is and the call that we have as followers of Jesus. You know, Romans 5.8, we've talked about that several times in the most recent months. But God demonstrates or shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were our ugliest, our worst. He loved us so much that he, he died for us. 
it again causes our minds to go back to grace and mercy and the grace and mercy we've received. John 13, 34 to 35 tells us a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so this commandment that we've been given to walk in truth and walk in love and extend that to those around us reminds us the best picture or one of the best ways for the lost to see the reality of Christ and what he can bring to their life, who he desires them to be, is to see followers of Jesus loving each other well. So we have to ask ourselves, how have we done over the last six months in the area of loving each other? Have we been living that truth out? And then in 1 John 2, 7 through 11, again, we walked through this passage some time ago now, but it's a great reminder for us as well in this area of, of the radical love we're called to. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. Here he says it again, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides, rests, and lives in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We should be marked in our lifestyle and who we are by the truth and by love and the mix of both. I do remember the Shema. Maybe it's been a while since you've read this. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you shall lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, leading into verse 6, where John defines love. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. What an amazing challenge for us to love as Jesus did. Remember, we live to make Jesus make sense to a lost and dying world. It's a call in our lives. That's who we are. That's who Christ has created us to be, having opportunity to be able to share the gospel, love and truth, walking in harmony. So first and foremost, the true church is characterized, as we've seen in the beginning verses, primarily one through four, uh, by Christ's truth. We're to hold to the truth Jesus is truth. God's word is truth. The gospel is truth. We are told to those. Next, we see the true church is characterized by Christ's love. So our lives are to funnel and function uh, from that fact, the two working in harmony together. Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How huge is that? That as we walk with the Father, he teaches us, instructs us, shows us how effectively we can love people with the gospel, with the truth. 1 Corinthians 14.33 is a great, uh, a great verse for us to remember as well. And then I'll give one example and, and we'll be done uh, for today. 1 Corinthians 14.33. We wonder in our world why so many are confused, crippled by fear. And there are some who would say that that's the fault of God. But we know in this verse, 1 Corinthians 14, for God is not a God of confusion. The author of confusion is our enemy, the devil, and so no wonder people are scattering and scampering and looking. He is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that truly is who we are called to be as well, a people of peace. Okay, think of this example, and Eam actually mentioned it, but there are many in our world who um, approach truth uh, like it's a big wad of Play-Doh, where they form it, change it, work with it, and then if they run into someone else who has, has their own ball of Play-Doh, they too are, are forming it, and, and if that looks better, let's say, I'm making a car, and let's say uh, that person's making an airplane, and I think, well, that truth, that airplane is better for me, then then I'm going to make an airplane too. And so they think that truth shifts and changes. And so they think that it's working for them. It's going to work for me. We've heard that a bunch. If it works for you, it's your truth. You can do it. And so they start to form that, change that, shape that to make it look like, and then they run to someone else, uh, maybe who has a motorboat. Uh, I want the motorboat. So they, they change. See how that shifts. As followers of Jesus, we have concrete, solid truth in the person of Jesus, in God's word, and in the gospel. And so our truth doesn't shift or change. Now, God illuminates truth in our lives when we spend time with him. Okay, here's, here's the difference, and here's why I highlighted that. And it really was great that, that Eam mentioned that. In his testimony, instead of truth for us being held in our hands and our shifting it and changing it and making it, the Bible clearly says that we are clay on the potter's wheel. And so truth isn't what's changed and formed. We are. We are the clay. He is the one who builds and shapes and changes our lives transforming us into the person of Christ. So we don't hold truth in our hands like a three-year-old or five-year-old or 50-year-old playing with Play-Doh. He, he holds us on that potter's wheel and molds us and shapes us. And the last six months have definitely been a time where we have been shaped, hasn't it? Not comfortable, not easy. And in a world who says truth is relative and, and truth is, is formed in our own hands and we can shift and whatever truth is, is right for you when we as followers of Jesus hold to the truths of God, the person of Jesus, we're seen as someone who maybe isn't real open 
and is closed and, and, and people can't understand or grasp that until the reality of Christ comes true in their lives and then they too jump on the potter's wheel and stay on there through life. When we signed on to be followers of Jesus, whether we realized it or not, we didn't sign on to do the easy things. We signed on to do the hard things. Following Jesus, holding to him as a person of truth, the truth, holding to God's word as, as truth, is much harder than just grabbing a Play-Doh. But as our lives continue to become more and more transformed into the likeness of Jesus, the closer we draw to him, the less of ourselves as we run towards him and we see the gospel impact the kingdom. Whether by us or by a guy who lives in Thailand, halfway across the world, we're encouraged when we get the bigger picture and reminded that this isn't our home. Potter's wheel is challenging and hard. But praise God, we're in the hands of the one who can handle and manage it all, of which no one else can claim. Let's pray together.